Hey everybody, I have an announcement. My new book, Traumatized, is available for pre-order now. In it, I cover PTSD and complex PTSD, the symptoms we can experience when we have been traumatized, and of course, ways we can overcome these and heal. There is honestly too much helpful information in this book to list it all, but if you've ever wondered if you've been traumatized or are working to overcome past trauma, this book is for you. I cannot wait for it to be out in the world and help anyone suffering, so please pre-order yours today at katiemorton.com. You can ask her why breakups suck or why you've hit a plateau. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know. Ask Katie anything. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. Um, You guys, I'm not going to lie. I am pretty tired this week. Just being, just keeping it real with you. I was joking with Sean. I was like, you think you could record a podcast where it's just someone breathing and yawning? Because let's just record me while I sleep and that'll be the type of podcast. <laughs> Sometimes you got to laugh about it, you guys. But um, yeah, I think I'm going to take like a week off or two weeks off here coming up. Um, I'm finished pretty much with the book. I finished chapter 15, the final chapter. I just did my edits yesterday. Um and yeah, I just kind of need a like a brain break. Um, I'm feeling definitely foggy and definitely like just tired. So I'm taking those signs, you guys, I'm listening to myself. I need a break. So I will be doing that and I'll keep you posted as to what that is and when that is. And But I think it'll probably be next week. And I don't know, maybe we'll take a break on the podcast or um, maybe I'll just record that and that's all I'll do because these are, don't really stress me out. It's funny. Other stuff is a little more stressful, like doing research for a video or uh, doing research for the book and like writing a book. That was, I think that just like put me over the edge. Um, but we're here. How are you doing? Just checking in, check in with yourself. How are you feeling? Are you extra tired? Are you feeling a little brain fog? Feeling a little burnt out? Um, I'm sure a lot of you are because shit is crazy. People are stuck at home and being parents and teachers and wearing all the hats. Um, so make sure you take a little time for yourself, even if it's just like an extra long shower or sleeping in an extra half hour, going to bed a little early. All those things are things that we can do to take care of ourselves. Am I right? I have to move this up a little. There we go. I felt like I was hunched down. Um, okay. So for those of you who don't know, when I ask the questions in the community tab, I usually heart them. Um, I sign into the opinions that don't matter channel and I heart the ones that I am going to answer. And there were two that I planned on answering with my wonderful and amazing friend, Christina P. Um, I planned on answering two more with her and we didn't get through them. And I didn't want to, cause I wasn't sure about her time and I didn't want to hold her too long. You know, she's a busy, busy boss lady. Um, so I had those two questions up front and total today we have 11 questions. And again, I do the ones with the most thumbs ups, but, uh, YouTube for some reason doesn't sort them that way. And I can't figure out how to sort them that way. And I tried to refresh and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, so if I missed yours and had a lot of thumbs ups, I'm sorry. That was not my intention. You can ask it again next week. And hopefully I scroll as far as I can until things have like no thumbs ups or like two. So I do my best, but sometimes like today I was scrolling through and I found one with 90 thumbs ups and it was like two pages deep for me. So I don't really understand their system. Um, but anyways, without further ado, you're not here to hear me ramble and talk, or maybe you are. Um, 
but I think you're here for me to answer your questions. So let's get into them because they are great as always. Now, the first question that was for Christina and I says, hi, Katie and Christina, but it's just me now and I'm sorry. It says, can you please talk about ways that we can communicate our needs and hurts to our friends without feeling like an exposed nerve when we do it? I grew up in a family that was great at being practical, but was somewhat terrible at communicating honestly and being open with sharing their feelings. I'm Russian. My brother also suffered from a mental illness, so my mom would put all of her energy into taking care of him, and I grew up often feeling very neglected. Because I didn't want to create more trouble in my household, I stopped sharing how I felt and pretty much became an adult in a child's body to help my mom out. I'm the youngest of three. Since I had to push my needs aside for others, I noticed that I now suck at asking for help when I need it, of course. I often reply to things that bother me with no worries, and when I do find the strength to say how I really feel, it's difficult very difficult. I fall apart when I have to share my hurts or be confrontational about unpleasant things. Got any advice for me? I love both of your podcasts. Thank you. Thank you. Christina Pease is awesome. If you don't know, it's called Where My Mom's At, and she is hilarious and wonderful. Um, Yes, I have some advice for you. The thing about... So this is going to suck for all of you, and I'm even in the boat with you where I... Um, don't always uh, share how I feel because I don't want to upset other people. Um, I'm definitely a little too empathic for my own good sometimes where like I'll feel I'll be like, oh, they're already stressed out. Ooh, I don't want to cause them any more stress. Whatever. You know, we all do stuff like that. So the best way for us to not fall apart or feel overly emotional when we share just a snippet of how we're doing, there are two things we can do. Number one, we just keep doing it more often because what happens is if we get so used to just stuffing things deep, deep in the belly, deep into our body, and we don't express it. um, When we finally open it up, it's like all the emotions that our our brain and body have been dying to express come out at once. And a lot of people are worried like, oh, I'm going to become overwhelmed with a flood of emotion. Yeah, you'll probably cry and feel feel things because you haven't been allowing yourself to feel them little by little. It's like a a pot on the stove. If you keep the lid on it, it's going to boil and start bubbling over. But if we leave the lid off, it lets the steam out and it's less likely to boil over. Do you see what I mean? So just talking about it and doing it more and more and more and more will make that intensive emotional response go down. However, not all of us are comfortable doing that. And I personally do that a lot, cry to my friends and my mom and Sean and people, and that helps me take the edge off. But the big kicker for me and what really helps the most is doing it in therapy. Because man, I go into therapy every, although I haven't gone since like the beginning of COVID, right when COVID hit, I was like, ah, I maxed out. And I, I talked to my, my therapist. I'm trying to find a new therapist, if you guys don't know, not that you're following my life, like what's happened next? Cause it's not that exciting. Um, but I'm looking for a new therapist, but at the time, you know, now people weren't taking new patients and weren't seeing people in person. So I just went back to my old therapist who's wonderful. I just want someone to like push me past where she's gotten me. Um, anyways, when I go in to talk to her, see her, and go back for those kind of what I call like a booster session, just to like, I need to get back on track. Shit's falling apart. I cry and cry and cry. <clears throat> Excuse me. I cry for like most of the first few sessions, like maybe five or six sessions. I just cry. And I'm talking through things, but I'm just crying. And I, I've always believed it's like that buildup of me not giving myself the space to cry and feel sad and feel overwhelmed and not do things, you know, like I'm just not giving into what my body's asking for. And so therapy is the place where it's like all comes out. And after maybe four, maybe six, maybe 10 sessions, um, it starts to be easier to just talk about things regularly, cry when I need to, but not just 
dump. Does that make sense? So it's like, I'm letting the steam out more and more. And then we get caught up and we're fine. And I know that these answers kind of suck because it's going to require you to go through it. Because um, I've been talking about this on uh, other my I think it's my live streams on Patreon. I was talking about this. But in my book, I there's a little clue in my new book where or not a clue. It's just like a, a hidden thing in there where I reference the going on a bear hunt song from when you're a kid. It's like going on a bear hunt going on a bear hunt. And you go, I can't go over it. Can't go under it. Can't go around it. We got to go through it. And that's the answer here. And it just so it's so applicable with therapy because you're like, you got to go through it. And so in order to not feel like an exposed nerve when you do it, you just got to keep doing it. And that nerve won't be so sensitive. It's almost like calluses on our hands, right? The more we rough them up, the thicker the calluses and the less sensitive our hand feels to that thing. And so we kind of have to do that emotionally. And I know it's uncomfortable, but trust me when I tell you through personal experience, I know that it gets better, it gets less, and we start to feel more able and just better at expressing how we feel and what's going on and being okay with the fact that if we cry, we cry. That's part of the human condition. It's part of what we do, right? Um, And this is definitely a result of like your upbringing and not feeling like it was okay. And because your brother already took, we all experience this. If anybody like out there has a sibling who's had an issue, ailment, whatever, um, if we have a higher needs sibling, we as the other sibling can take on the responsibility of being quote unquote, the perfect one so that we don't cause our parents any more stress because we already know how hard things are. And it really sucks because no one is perfect all the time. And every child is deserving of care at different times and needing of care and extra support at different times. But unfortunately we, we all do that, right? Because we just don't want to cause our parents any strife. And, um, but now it's not serving you. So we got to stop. We got to stop doing that. You have every right to feel shitty and to experience those shitty feelings and express those shitty feelings. I hope that's helpful. I know it's hard, but that's really where it's coming from. And that's the best way. It's got to go through it. We got to feel it. We got to get it out and it'll get easier and better. And also, I think um, just one last little bit to this is that when you're telling your friends, um, like communicating your needs or your hurts, make sure, and I'm sure you already are, but just for anybody else out there, make sure it's with someone who really wants to support you, wants to help you, is loving. We have like a history with them. We can trust them. Um, Because even though this is going to be difficult, I want to ensure that you have like a positive experience where they're like, oh my God, I didn't, I didn't know, you know, because that would be my response if a friend came to me. And even if they started crying and, and were overwhelmed, like had a tough time getting it out, I would be like, thanks for telling me. I had no idea. I'm so sorry that hurt your feelings, but thank you for taking the time to tell me, you know, that would be my response. And I want you all to have that same response, um, which as long as we pick people who care about us, love us, and been in our life for a while, that'll be their response. Okay. Question number two, a little water to wet my whistle. What do you recommend for those who tend to isolate themselves when they're feeling down or depressed. I push everyone I know away and ultimately it ends up hurting me in the long run. I feel like I instinctively want to be alone rather than be around others. When I'm not in a good mood and I feel like that is becoming a barrier in many of my relationships with others, is it weird to want to struggle alone instead of in front of others? It's very normal. It's not weird. People, uh, there really, when it comes to this, there are two types of people. There are people who want to be around others and then people who don't. Um, 
I mean, I guess there's people in the middle who do a little bit of both. And I'm kind of that person. I need like my recharge time, but I also need other people to help me feel better. Um, <clears throat> help me process out what I'm thinking and feeling. But what do we do? If we isolate when we're feeling down or depressed, um, okay, there's a couple of things. So the first and the most effective, at least in my experience with my patients who do this, um, is to when you feel good. So when you're not down or depressed, when we come out of it, because it inevitably we will come out of it. Okay. When we come out of it, I want you to tell your friends that you do this. We have to communicate. We have to let people know. And you could even be honest with them. I don't know why the fuck I do this, but I keep doing it and I hate it. And I do it and then I feel worse and I just need to get out of it. So we need to tell them. And then, then there's the ask, right? Because people in our lives want to know how they can help. So then it's really important that we say to them, hey, when you notice me doing this, like let's say normally I respond to text, it takes me like a day or two or an hour or whatever. Um, I want you to, to reach out more. I want you to call me out on some of this stuff and like, and come over and like push in a little bit, right? Whatever we need from them. Like one of my friends um, who's on YouTube as well. And um, I, we talked about this in a video this is years ago, but um, Thomas Ridgewell, anyway, he has Tomska as the channel. He shared a really cool tool that he uses for his friends um, where he just texts them like a color, uh, like green, yellow, red, I think. And there might've been more in there, but it was essentially like, I'm doing well, I'm not doing well, emergency, like I need you. And so we can have a way to communicate or we can just have our friends um, have some things that we want them to do to help support us. Because one of the things that Tom shared with us is that usually the best thing for him is just to have someone come over uh, and maybe bring dinner or whatever, not talk about what's going on, not like, how are you? And like expect a real conversation, but just be there with him, watch shows or like TV shows, movies, whatever. Um, and so figure out what, what you would hope and want from your friends or family or whoever, and ask for it. Tell them, hey, when you feel me pulling away, when I'm not responding, when I'm I'm just not replying to things and I, I flake on plans we had, or when you you notice that I'm doing that, please push harder. Please come over. Please just show up or something. Um, let them know what you need and ask for it. Because that, in my experience, again, that's the most effective way is kind of having this plan ahead of time and then asking them for what you need. Um, and, you know, this is family, friends, whoever you want to support you. Tell Again, telling the people that deserve this information and will use it to help you. Um and that's really the best thing to do. Um, another thing that people talk about, and I don't find it as effective, but I want to throw it out there just in case it helps a couple more of you, is that you can just push yourself through. Like, I know it takes all the energy we have to like get up, but we can uh, text a friend. I'm coming over. Is that cool? And if they say, yeah, cool, we get in our car and we go over there. Uh, some people can push through. I don't find that to be as effective, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't work because maybe for some of you, you can do that. Like, um, I always tell my patients when they're having a tough time, I'm like, can you hold on for 30 seconds? Count down from 30 while you do something and use your energy to do that thing for 30 seconds. We can often do things for like short little periods of time. So if like, Hey, can you text that friend? Can you hold, hang in there and text them for 30 seconds? Oh yeah, I think I could probably do that. Okay. Well, let's do that. Okay. Now they've said, yeah, come over. Can we take the 30 seconds? Can we get out to the car and get in the car, you know, grab our stuff, go out. Um, 
there are some things that we can do to push through a little bit. Um, just considering those little 30 second increments or a minute or something like that. Um, so that could probably help as well, but it's really, I find getting our friends and family on board and letting them know that it's okay to be pushy with us sometimes. Um, obviously if we don't like the way that they're like, maybe they're being too pushy or too whatever, um, then that's something we're going to have to let them know about as well. Right. We're going to have to tell them, Hey, that was too much next time. Could you do it this way? But we're going to learn together. Um, and part, the biggest part of that is us learning how to communicate our needs and wants and feelings and all that good stuff. Um, and yes, of course, uh, if you're nervous about it, you can write down what you want to share first, and then you can, um, practice saying it out loud before you see them and like even role play it out with your therapist if you want. But then you, at the end of the day, you're going to have to go and you're going to have to do it. And you got this. And in my experience, they're so excited. They, they want to help. I mean, excited, maybe is not the right word, but they're, they're grateful for you sharing that information because now they know what to do. Because so often I hear from uh, friends and family that they just felt helpless and they weren't sure what to do and they didn't want to make it worse. So they were quiet and, and then it made it only worse for us, you know, so we need to tell them what we need. Okay. I hope that's helpful. Question number three. Hey, Katie, I am well into my thirties now, but still feel stuck in a very childlike brain. I feel very incapable of doing adult things, earning enough money to move out, buying a car, having a romantic relationship. I believe this is to do with my enmeshment and separation, but could you talk more about ways to help myself become more adult? Thank you. It's got a lot of likes and a lot of comments. And it's interesting because I think a lot of us feel this way and it definitely has to do with enmeshment, separation anxiety. Um, and when we talk about enmeshment and separation anxiety, what I mean by that is enmeshments when we don't have boundaries with someone and like we are them and we can struggle to make decisions on our own. We can struggle to, um, really it's like to even know who we are without that other person, because we believe like, again, we are one, like I can't make decisions without checking in with Sean to see what he wants. And, and I don't know what I want to eat until somebody else tells me. And it's really important that we feel empowered to make our own decisions. Sure. We can ask someone else when it is like when the issue necessitates it, but it shouldn't be something that we're doing all the time, right? Um, and then separation anxiety or separation, um, it can be like when we really don't, we worry about what could happen when we're away from someone else. It can have to do with um, our attachment when we're young and our attachment, like our parents leaving us. We can have fear of abandonment. It can be part of our BPD-like symptoms. Um, and a lot of it can be kind of like an anxiety disorder. Again, separation anxiety, meaning I worry that when I'm not with them, something bad's going to happen. I worry that they won't come back. I worry, you know, and so it can kind of come from any of those places. I just want to make sure we're all on the same page and you know what I'm talking about when I use those terms. So yes, this probably has to do um, with enmeshment and maybe separation anxiety and uh, attachment issues for, as in your childhood. The way to help ourselves become more adult is truly to, um, there's, there's like two parts to it. Number one is set up healthy boundaries with our parents or caregivers, whoever we were completely enmeshed with. We need to set up healthy boundaries with them, meaning maybe I don't have to talk to them like six times a day. Maybe I can talk to them once. Maybe I tell my mom or my sister or my grandma or whoever it is that, um, you know, please don't text me quite as often. I have a busy day. You know, we start putting in these like buffers so that, or we only reply to like, 
all the texts that they send. We only reply twice in a day, which is very reasonable, by the way. That's even, you know, it's a lot if you're talking on the phone and texting. I don't know how intense this is. I'm just throwing out some ideas. So we're going to have to put in some healthy boundaries. Or like, I don't go home to see my parent or sister or grandma or whoever every weekend. I go every other week. We have to start spacing things out so that we're making room for these healthy boundaries of I'm an adult, you're an adult. We don't have to be completely enmeshed with each other to have a relationship. And yes, we're going to have to kind of grieve that intense and unhealthy closeness that we felt, but it might've felt good at some point, right? So we kind of have to grieve that and instead look to ask our therapist, what is healthy? What is the, you know, like I'm giving you some ideas and examples, like maybe once a day you talk and I don't know how intensely you keep in touch with these people still, but we're going to have to place boundaries in our life. And not only with the people that we've previously been enmeshed or overly connected with, um, but also in our relationships now and the relationships that we built from um, in our life, even the new ones to come, right? And so it's just that not being on tap for people 24-7, not feeling the need to ask someone before we make a decision. It's going to come with that space and that that healthy separation and healthy boundaries. So that's step number one. Then step number two is to start small. I want you to start making some quote unquote adult like decisions on your own. Meaning, let's say we need a new coffee table in our house. Okay, let's look at our budget. How much can we afford? $100? $200? I don't know. Look at your budget and decide maybe it's $400. How much can you afford to spend? You're going to do that on your own. You're not going to ask anybody. You're going to figure out your budget and then you're going to pick a coffee table. Okay. Then maybe that's too big. Okay. Maybe you're like, oh, I couldn't do that without asking my mom or my sister or whoever we're enmeshed with. Um, It's very common that it's mothers, by the way. That's why I keep saying moms. Um, But maybe it's your dad or maybe it's your brother. Um, Okay. So let's say that's too much. Maybe it's enough for us to just pick the place that we want to eat at that night or what we want to order in. Maybe that's the thing. Maybe it's uh, something else like uh, I want to find a new TV show to watch. I'm going to pick it myself. I know these all sound very silly for some of us, but for others, it could be really difficult. We might ask and call and text other people to get their take over and over and over before we can make our own decision. We might not be able to make our own decisions about anything. So start where you are. Start small. Start with decisions that are a little difficult and we would probably just be like, hey, I was thinking about this, you know, whoever we're overly connected with. What do you think? Um, If we'd normally just do that, but we already have an idea, let's just go forward with our idea. Um, And I think those little steps of making these adult-like decisions over and over will prove to us not only that we're capable, but also that we don't need another person's perspective all the time. Sure, we might want to get someone else's input on big decisions like, hey, I'm thinking about um, buying this home or I'm thinking about getting married to this person. We might want at least one other person's perspective on that, okay? And that's okay to check in with people. But when we're doing that, I want you to always remember that their opinion only matters if we decide it does. Okay, I'm going to say that again. Their opinion only matters if we decide it does. We are 
At the end of the day, 100% in control of ourselves and the choices that we make. And so making those small choices and adult decisions can help us kind of grow up, quote unquote, grow up and feel more adult-like. Um, and I think that really answers the question. Let me look into it again. We feel stuck in a childlike brain, incapable of doing um, adult things, earning enough money to move out, buying a car and having a romantic relationship. Yes. Okay. So all those small choices um, will help empower you. And also I would, and another part of this, I think because the like, um, I feel very incapable. Um, not only could that be coming from a measurement, but I would also be curious if this is coming from like a negative self-talk place, which we all know we have that negative self-talk. And I would encourage you to notice the the things that you say to yourself about earning enough money, move out or buying a car, having a romantic relationship. I would encourage you to recognize when you're talking shit to yourself about those things. And then I want you to use those bridge statements to make that more positive. Again, it's not oh my God, I'm, I'm so smart. I'm going to make so much money and be totally fine on my own. I'm going to move out tomorrow. Okay. That's not that we're not going to believe that today, right? We need to build the bridge from where we're at now to that. Like I'm so empowered space. So those bridge statements can be, I am open to the thought or the belief that maybe I could make enough money and move out. I'm also, it's possible that someday soon I would be able to buy a, my own car. You know, if I save up enough, I, I could see that that it possibly it's possible that it could happen. So we want to live in the maybes and the possibilities and the um, I'm open to the idea. Um, I may not have all the facts. I want you to live in that space as we move those thoughts over from negativity island to positivity island and get us over there. Um, and so that's just another added kind of homework assignment to do along with taking those really small steps um, and pushing ourselves out and boundaries, obviously. But yeah, I hope that that helps. I hope that that's clear. <sighs> I'm sorry. I'm yawning. It's me. It's not you. And I mean that honestly and earnestly because I got up really early this morning because I had to be on the morning news. Um, so anyways, I hope that that helps. I hope that's a good answer. Um, and just trust me, it gets easier and it gets better. It's so hard, especially if we're living at home with the person we're still enmeshed with. Putting those boundaries in place is going to be tricky, but keep at it. Keep separating yourself. Keep uh... another random homework assignment I would have for you would be to tell the parent or the, you know, whoever it is that you're enmeshed with that when they knock on your bedroom door, let's say, and they're like, Hey, um, I'm going to make such and such for dinner. And you're like, oh, I already uh, ordered this food. I'm going to go pick it up. We've done it on our own. We're separate. They may be frustrated. We may get a little bit of pushback. They're like, but I already went to the store and be like, I really appreciate you. And I appreciate that. I just really had a hankering for curry or a sandwich or I don't know, whatever it is. Um, so I'll have that, you know, I'll have leftovers tomorrow. I'm happy to have leftovers tomorrow, but we're just asserting ourselves just a little bit um, because that people pleasing and that enmeshment will only hold us back. So we have to kind of push out of that just little, little, little bits at a time. Okay. But stick with it. It gets better. Okay. Question number four, <coughs> excuse me, I had a tickle. It says, hi, Katie, how is it normal, quote unquote, normal to want your therapist to worry about you? 
I certainly don't exaggerate my issues, but I just constantly crave her attention and it makes me feel heard and seen. It also just makes me feel like my eating disorder is more real if I know that she worries about me. And therefore, I feel like I'm a lot more deserving of help and care. And they said, sorry for any spelling mistakes. English isn't their first language. Your spelling and writing in English is impeccable. And then um, there were other comments about this. So let me let me get into this first question. And then there's a couple follow-ups kind of in this vein of the same question. And um, a lot of you talked about like feeling like your past abusers or your parents used to gaslight you. And so you, you know, you want to sh- show it as much as possible because it was essentially denied for so long, right? Like no one would, re- they would reject the fact that you were hurting or upset. And so the thing is, and the interesting thing, and I don't mean to laugh because it's not funny. It's just like over and over again, I tell you guys how the therapeutic relationship mimics other relationships that we've had in our life. And that's what it's doing here is that we're playing out a different scenario where, <coughs> excuse me, where we want our therapist to worry about us in the way that we wished our parents used to worry about us or whoever it was who our caretaker was. We wanted them to care. We wanted them to take our pain and our feelings seriously. And they never did. And so now that we've got this little bit of it, right, we have the taste of it. Like, oh, they care. They actually care. They even kind of worry about me, I think. And we crave it more and more and more because it's like we have this big gaping hole in ourselves where our parents should have been giving us those good mother, good father messages, uh, filling us with love and support, setting up this like healthy foundation for us with which we can like jump into life and feel good. We have that void and we're trying to fill it. And we've probably been doing this in a lot of ways in our life where we're trying to like fill that that gaping hole that our parents left with other people and other experiences. And so now we're getting this little bit of it and we're like, oh yeah, we want more. We want more of it, right? And so of course, it's very normal. And it's because no one else did that for us. And that's kind of to the other follow-up question. Somebody said, I have a similar tendency to get emotional diarrhea with people, LOL. I tend to get a lot of past traumatic events, or I tend to talk a lot about past traumatic events and how I'm struggling because abusers were gaslighting me for so long. I finally want others to know that I'm in pain. And the fact that I'm in pain was denied and rejected for way too long. So now I just want to show it as much as I can. I don't find this necessarily worrisome because most people get it that I'm just being open and sincere and okay with being vulnerable. And yes, um, that's really where it comes from is we need that validation. And that's a very normal human response. No one wants to be laying on the ground with a broken leg and someone to be like, oh, that's not that big of a deal. Just get up and walk it off, dude. That's not helpful. And that's really hurtful, right? Then we can go into uh, like, a pit of despair slash shame spiral where we believe that like how we feel maybe isn't normal or isn't right or something's wrong with us. I am broken. I'm not valuable. We take in all of these like false beliefs because of how someone treated us, talked to us or neglected us. And so I believe wanting our therapist to worry about us, wanting our therapist to, um, to, I don't know, to, like care for us in this really like <clears throat> I believe 
you know, it's very normal for us to want our therapist to worry about us and care for us because we've never had anybody do that before. And so it can come out of uh, emotional neglect in our childhood. It could come out of, it could be even part of our borderline personality disorder. If we really, really, really worry that they're going to abandon us. And so we want to, you know, stay, uh, I don't know, I'm like using air quotes, but like sick enough that they won't refer us out or that they won't, uh, graduate us from the therapy process. We want to like stay in therapy as long as possible. Um, it could be part of that. Um, but a lot of it's just a normal human need the need to be cared for, worried about, um, validated. That's something that we all need. And so what I would encourage the real way out of this, that this is uncomfortable and we don't like that we do this and we're not sure. First of all, we have talked to our therapist about it. And I know you saw that coming. Of course, we've talked to our therapist about it. We have to let them know that we're feeling this way and that we enjoy this and we don't know why we enjoy this. And it kind of worries us, you know, or it bothers us. Um, talk about it. And I believe that uh, doing that inner child work that I always talk about that I know is super uncomfortable, but it's like being able to fill that void that our parents left ourselves, which I know for a lot of people are like, sounds so depressing. I promise you it's not. I promise you, you'll feel better. And we'll stop seeking out other relationships to fill that void, which is a much healthier way to live in that life where we have uh, reparented ourselves and healed that wound. Other people are just additions onto our life. They're just all like cherries on top. It's just extra. And that's what we want. We want to be filled and enough on our own. And I know that can be hard to hear, but you, I want us all to feel like I am enough. I am good as I am. But having this other person in my life, that's just awesome extra stuff. That's the good extra stuff. Um, and so talking about it in therapy, healing that uh, wound left by your mother or your father, whoever your caregiver was, being able to give her, give and offer ourselves the good mother, good father messages um, can be really beneficial and just part of that healing process. Writing letters to our, our younger self can be really healing. Um, there's a lot of that that we can do and that I think will be a part of the healing process and help you not only feel validated and supported by your therapist, but also know that, you know, they don't have to worry about you. We don't need them around all the time. It's just extra good stuff. Um, and I know I'm kind of all over the place there, but that's because this can come from a lot of different places, right? It can come from attachment. It can come from emotional neglect. It can come from <clears throat> borderline personality disorder traits. It can come from, um, abuse in our past that we like were gaslit and our parents maybe were narcissists. Um, and we want to we want to heal that. We want to fill that void with healthy thoughts and healthy beliefs, and and we can we have all the tools ourselves. We just sometimes need someone to give us the blueprints, and that's what a therapist is there for. Okay. Question number five it says, "Hi, Katie. I'm wondering if there's anything I can do to stop having intrusive memories. I've always looked on past memories with a feeling of dread because I would always recall memories with strong negative memories and replay them over and over and over again." Sometimes these are shameful memories, like an embarrassment or regret of not doing something different in the moment. But sometimes these memories are of instances of intense anxiety, terror, or fear. Whenever I'm replaying these, it can feel, um, it's like I can feel the shame or paralyzing fear and hear the voices as if it's happening to me all over again. Is there any way to put an end to it since the process of recalling often keeps me up for hours at night or gives me so much anxiety um, when I'm not constantly mentally preoccupied? Um, 
And there was another comment about worries of confidentiality of telling their therapist. So I'll get into that later, but let's start with this. Um, When it comes to intrusive memories, we can have like intrusive thoughts, which are part of OCD, part of our anxiety disorder. And the truth, the way out of that is actually exposure therapy and prolonged exposure therapy. And I know that sounds super uncomfortable and it is uncomfortable, but the good thing about OCD and those kind of anxiety driven things is that the more we actually do the thing, the more we prove to our brain that it's not really that scary or overwhelming and there's no need to really worry about it, right? We're like proving it's okay. And so exposure therapy helps with the the OCD component of intrusive thoughts. However, these intrusive memories, when you say intense anxiety, terror, and fear, this sounds like a PTSD flashback. <clears throat> and I want everybody to know that, that you can call them in intrusive memories or you can call them flashbacks. They're the same thing. Flashbacks are those... Uh, is a symptom of PTSD where we feel like we're back in that shitty experience that we had that was super scary and terrifying and it's happening all over again, which is what this person pretty much said. It like feels like it's happening all over again. And the real way to stop these uh, flashbacks is to find a trauma specialist and start talking about our trauma and then working through it. And working through it can mean a lot of things. It is very helpful when we begin our treatment of trauma to put things into a trauma narrative, meaning put it into a story, tell it back, uh, figure out, talk through all the details as much as possible. I know it's super uncomfortable, but trauma memories are often scattered and we don't, we can't make sense of them and we can't recall all the details and it's just a mess. And so putting it together, cleaning it up, making it into a cohesive story with as much of the details we can recall is really healing and helpful. Another step a lot of people find helpful is like a trauma timeline, because if it's all convoluted, we have a bunch of traumas, it can really help for us to lay them out in a timeline so that we can gauge what happened when we were five from what happened when we were eight um, and kind of put them into some chronological order helps again, make sense of what went on. And then the, the component past that. So let's say we've done that work. The next step is doing some kind of, not more intensive, because that's not the right word, but a more trauma-focused type of therapy, whether that's EMDR, schema therapy, trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy. There are a lot of types of therapy out there that can be really beneficial for us in doing the trauma work. And more and more research, as I was reading through the book uh, to prepare for writing my next book about trauma, I learned that just doing the narrative and timeline work does not always uh, it's not always enough. For some people it is, but for a lot of people, we still need another type of therapy. Um, and so if that is the case for you, I would encourage you to find someone else who does a certain type of trauma therapy that we think could be beneficial and help us move forward and move past it. Um, and I know it's hard work and I know it's uncomfortable, but so are these intrusive memories and these flashbacks that you're experiencing. Um, and the only way out again, we got to go through it. I know it sucks, but it it makes it, it, it does get better. And having extra support along the way, like group therapy is really beneficial. Um, <clears throat> it, it can and will get better. So just stick with it and know that through over time, they may get worse at first. We might have more of these, mem- these intrusive memories, these flashbacks as we start putting that trauma narrative together, but they will go away. Okay. And then the the comment that the comment that I had on the end of it about confidentiality of telling their therapist, a therapist, you can always ask. So this comment was like, you know, in certain states, every state is different, every country is different. And 
that is true, I guess, in some respects, but I've, I've talked to therapists in different, in different states, not in different countries, but in different states. And we all have the same confidentiality requirements, but in order to be sure that you're safe talking about it, you can ask and every therapist, when you start therapy has to give you, it's called informed consent. Like in order for me to be responsible for my patient and my patient to know what I'm responsible for, there is this thing called informed consent. It tells them what confidentiality limitations are, talks about privacy, HIPAA laws, all the stuff that we have to know. Um, even the, the rules that I have for my office, like you have to cancel at least 24 hours in advance or you're charged and just stuff like that. We have that informed consent. So when you go into therapy, read through your documents. It'll tell you because if a, uh, if a therapist or a, a you know, psychologist, whoever you're seeing, if they break your confidentiality without you signing something, because they're you can have a release of authorization where you sign away the ability for your therapist, let's say to talk to your psychiatrist. Um, if you haven't signed anything and they have uh, shared something and broke your confidentiality, you can take their license and you can report them. Um, and I don't, ta- I mean, no therapist takes confidentiality lightly. And if someone did that to you, you can report them. Um, so I would just encourage you to read the paperwork, make sure you know, that they haven't done that broker confidence um, without your knowledge and agreeance. And the only reasons that we can break confidentiality without you saying it's okay is if we worry that you are a danger to yourself or others. Um, and there are laws to to regulate that, like everything from uh, the Tarasoff is one of the laws, like if you're a danger to someone else, I have the ability to call that person if I can and make a concerted effort to warn them. Um, if I think you're a danger to yourself, I can call people in your life to have them get you. I can uh, have you 5150 into the hospital to keep you safe. There are a lot of things that we can do, but it's really just danger to self or others that allows us just to break confidence. Um, so check in, ask, see what it is in your state and in your country. What are the reasons they could break confidentiality and ensure that you're informed again, back to informed consent. We need to be informed about what our rights are so that we can make sure we're getting the right kind of care. Cool. Cool. Okay. Question number six says, hi, Katie, what can we do when positive coping skills just feel too exhausting, too much and too uncomfortable and too boring? They're not working for you. I feel like there is so much I need to do to keep my physical and mental health. And I really, I think I really resent it. I feel like a lot of coping skills I'm told feel like splashing a glass of water into a wildfire. But if you're in a forest and you get the glass of water and you have to run a mile home and then run back while making sure you don't spill the water. <laughs> I love this analogy. While negative ones are kind of more like stealing a helicopter with a huge water bucket nearby, assuming that you can fly it and letting it drop on the fire. So the fire is out, but you stole a helicopter and that's going to get you in trouble later. And who knows if you'll be able to do anything about the next fire while dealing with the aftermath of stealing that helicopter, right? For me, I just feel like I'm not keeping up with running home and back and I'm just not fast enough and enduring enough to keep it from spreading, yet alone, um, to extinguish it. I love this question. And it sounds like, it sounds there's two parts to this. And someone made a comment on this, which was exactly where my brain was going. The first thought I had is, it sounds like you need help, more help. Maybe we're in therapy once a week. Maybe we need therapy twice a week. We need someone with a helicopter who can help us 
helicopter not being unhealthy, helicopter being healthy, or someone with a big fire hose that can assist, right? We need someone who can come in and like drench that fire and put it out. Um, and so that means that instead of us running with this one cup, there's, you know, a hundred of people running with cups. I don't know. We just need more support. And so that is my first knee-jerk reaction is if we're feeling this way, meaning our coping skills aren't helping, they're uncomfortable, we don't like it, we're pissed off, it's frustrating, and we still feel like things are shitty, we need more support and that's okay. So that's my first thing. Then the second is maybe we need to rethink your coping skills because coping skills are not always easy. They don't always work, but we don't have to use those ones. There are tons and tons and tons of them out there. And I would encourage you to rewatch my video. Just get on YouTube and Google search Katie Morton coping skills and it'll come up. I offer 24 on there and I tell everybody to leave their 25th in the comments below. So the comments are filled with a lot of coping skills. And so I would encourage you to uh, check those out and try some new ones because I want you to get to the point where the coping skills that you have feel similar to the helicopter. And yes, I know the unhealthy coping skills, they just are a little bit stronger. Did you guys hear Sean sneeze? I hope that you did. Um, but they want, we want them to be just like the helicopter. And I know that they're just not always quite right. But in my experience, it takes about five of these healthy ones to outdo the one unhealthy urge. Yes, that ratio sucks. I hear you. But we need to get you to a point where those coping skills are moving you towards that. We need to get towards that helicopter feeling um, instead of feeling like it's a cup of water because that's not helping at all. It's essentially your coping skills are ineffective. And so we need to rethink them. I would encourage you to redo your safety plans, redo your list of coping skills, um, and come up with some new things that maybe will work better. Um, and if they don't, that's the, where we need more help and more care, more professional care. Um, and that's okay because sometimes all we can come up with is a cup of water and that's the best we got right now. And that doesn't mean things are terrible and never get better. It just means that we need more support. Um, so you'll get there. Don't fret. Um, stick with it. But speaking up with your therapist, letting them know this how you feel. Let them know you need more support. You maybe you need to join a group. Maybe um, you need to see them more more than once a week. You know that maybe we need intensive. Maybe we need to go into a treatment center. We need day programs. Ask them about the options. Let's start looking into it because that would be. That would really be my advice. But I love this analogy. It's really great. It's like throwing a glass of water onto a wildfire. It's That's how it can feel. Um, yeah, keep me posted. But I think that, that that's really where we're at. And that will hopefully help. <clears throat> Man, my throat today. I think it's because the smoke is coming back. I'm probably feeling it already. Ugh. Okay. Question number seven says, Hi, Katie. What is the difference between dissociation and brain fog. I often, most of the time, feel cut off from the world and unable to take in reality. I quote unquote, zone out, especially when overstimulated. And I'm not sure what I'm experiencing. Okay. So dissociation occurs when we are triggered. And it's usually as the result of uh, a past trauma, right? We're triggered with something using our five senses that remind us of the trauma or the scary event. And our brain is like, this is too much. Oh my God, is this happening again? Wow. It pulls the ripcord and pulls us out. Either we feel out of body or we feel out of environment. It can feel, um, you know, like, I don't know, everybody experiences differently. Some people say it's like a dream state. Some people say that it's like, it's hard to see clearly. Things are kind of distorted. We can feel like we're watching ourselves go through our day and we're like, Ooh, she, 
wow, that's me. Oh my God, I hope I'm making sense. And so there's all sorts of ways we can experience it. But I just want to give you an idea of what dissociation is. And brain fog can happen usually when we're like overly tired or burnt out. Sometimes it can accompany depression when we really struggle to concentrate. And so they're, they are very different. However, I do want to talk about the fact, and I haven't talked about this in a while, how dissociation is kind of this spectrum. And actually, I'm working on a video about this, about dissociation, because I haven't talked about it in a long time, I realized. Um, so thank you to those that mentioned it on Instagram and reminded me to talk about it. Um, and I don't think I added this in, so I'll make sure to put it in. But dissociation is kind of a spectrum. On the low end of the spectrum, we can like, quote unquote, space out or zone out for a short period, like, oh my God, I don't remember how I got home. Usually that's our brain being like, I'm too tired or overwhelmed. Well, let's not, we don't need to pay attention to this. It's not important. And it help. it like zones us out. Then we have kind of like daydreaming, basic daydreaming, where we just space out during a meeting and we're like, remember that time that I was in Paris and things were easy and I didn't have to wear a mask and huh, we daydream. Then there's maladaptive daydreaming, which is like when we purposely go into a daydream that is very much like our life. It's like a basic life story that we could easily, it's it's believable, it's relatable. It's not a dream. It's not a made up thing. It's like kind of what's happening, but we've created it to, to go a certain way, right? And we go into it when we can't deal with regular life. Um, and then there's like more of the dissociation and then there's dissociative identity disorder more on this part of the spectrum where um, it's so difficult for us to be in our uh, current state that we, it's like too, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? And I'm saying uh, a lot and Sean has told me I'm doing that and I just realized I'm doing that and I'm sorry, I'll get better. It's because I'm tired. Um, but there, I did it again. Over in the dissociative identity disorder portion, not going to say it again. We have such a tough time being in our body and in our current experience that we split off into multiple identities, meaning that maybe the tough part of me deals with all this shit and this trauma I'm going through and tells people to fuck off when they need to and get out of my way. And so there's that part of my personality and it breaks off into one and I could give it a different name and she could have a different type of being. She might even smoke cigarettes. Some people say that they're... uh, I did it. Shit. That their other, <laughs> their alters will have different behaviors that they personally don't have. So that that's kind of part of how this, that spectrum works. And I just wanted to explain that because this brain fog and zoning out sounds like it's on the dissociative spectrum. However, it's kind of over on this side, meaning it's still happening. And I would be curious if it's related to a trauma because that's very common or is it just because you said it's just when you're overstimulated so you might be just super super stressed out burnt out overwhelmed and your brain can't comprehend it all can't process it and so that's why it's happening so what's the difference that's really the difference brain fog can happen as a result of like depression feeling feeling really stressed out um and we just can't think clearly. We can't focus. Like if you guys don't know, one of the main symptoms of depression we don't talk about enough is lack of concentration or concentration difficulty. So that can happen and that can be kind of like a brain fog. Brain fog can also be a, a side effect of different antidepressants or medications and things like that or not just not sleeping well even. But when it comes to dissociation, if we have lapses in our memory, I don't even remember that happening. Oh my God, how did I get home? Oh my God, what was happening just then? What did I say? If there are lapses in memory, that is not just a brain fog or a space out. <clears throat> that is part of our dissociation because our 
our brain just can't handle it. So do some, you know, think about it, pay attention, notice next time this happens. And if you have memory lapses or not, or if you think it's triggered by a trauma memory, it's probably more of the dissociation component and part of that, that zoning out. Or if it's just us like spacing out in a meeting for a second, that is probably just our brain feeling maxed out, burnt out. Maybe we're a little bit depressed and struggling to concentrate. I know that can be tricky to tease out, but do your best, pay attention because you know what you're experiencing more than anyone else. So just paying attention to those symptoms will help you hopefully figure that out. But that's really the difference, okay? And I would argue that even part of that zoning out and brain fog is kind of still on that spectrum of dissociation. Okay. Question number eight says, hi, Katie, can you talk about having an emotionally unintelligent parent and how that might affect us? Of course, I have been going to therapy for about four months now and know, and, um, and now know that my mom is emotionally unintelligent. She can be very judgmental. She gossips, needs her way all the time, gets mad very easily, and is oblivious to how her actions could be seen by others. The lack of empathy was especially hard for me growing up. Plus, she was a very strict parent, but that's beside the, besides the point. It's hard for me to validate myself when I don't think she's a narcissist or was emotionally abusive. Plus the fact that my three brothers love how she parented us and want to do the same with their kids. Oh, I'm the only girl and a highly sensitive person. I recently had a baby, which caused a weird rush of mixed emotions throughout my pregnancy as I reflected on my own childhood. That can happen. When I tried to explain it to someone else, it sounds so lame to me to be so worked up about this um, now as a 27-year-old mom myself. Like, get over it. Deep down, I don't think I'm good enough and have low confidence in my abilities. I think this ties back to my mom, but I'm still struggling to understanding all of it and her role and why I am the way that I am. I hope this makes sense. And thanks for all that you do. Of course, that makes sense. And I just want everybody out there to know our parents don't have to be narcissists or emotionally abusive or neglectful for us to have issues with the way they parented us. I'm just saying that. Don't think that our parents also, first of all, um, narcissistic people rarely get diagnosed or treated. Some do. And for those of you out there getting that treatment and help, I applaud you. 10 gold stars. That's fucking amazing. But it's not that common because they think that they're amazing, right? A lot of times part of narcissism is thinking that we're great. A narcissist might end up in therapy because uh, whoever they get their supply from is requiring it and they don't have another option maybe. Um, But usually they don't. So an emotional abuse is something that doesn't leave any marks, right? So we can feel like it's not in tough enough. It's not intense enough. I can't tell you how many of my patients and viewers, you guys have told me that you've struggled to admit that you were abused because it wasn't sexual or physical. Hey, emotional abuse is just as bad. No abuse is, is create like all abuse is created equal. And I know that's a horrible thing to say, but that's the truth. Like they're all bad. Okay. They're shittily created equal. Okay. And so it sounds like your mom was emotionally abusive to you. Sure. Your brothers didn't experience that, but they're not you. We all have different levels of resiliency. I wrote about this in my book about how we are all born with certain levels of resiliency. Resiliency being our ability to manage something shitty and come out of it okay, right? That's what resiliency is. And some of us, through our own personality, tend to be more resilient. Maybe we are super, super outgoing. 
we're extroverts and we have lots of friends that we talk to and we really build up our support system really good. And maybe we tend to enjoy more activity. So we are super active in like school sports and, uh, I don't know, journal club or like a journalism club. I mean, um, key club, maybe we're doing all these things, right? So we have all these places to not only get fulfilled, but also to have support and to have something that we feel we're good at building up our confidence. Some of us are like that. Some of us are not. Therefore, like me and my brother couldn't be more different. There's some things that are very similar, but some things were very different. My brother is definitely less extroverted than me, if you can imagine, because I'm not even that much extroverted, but he is definitely more introverted. <clears throat> he likes to have just a few close friends, um, more shy and quiet. Um, although as he's gotten older, he's changed as well. And as we age, we do change. But I just say all of that to tell you that just because your brother's experienced your mom one way doesn't negate the way you experienced her. And also you said you're the only female. I know people want to say that it doesn't matter what sex we're born, but in some ways there are differences in our genetic makeups and our profiles and things that we have a tendency to be. Everybody's different. So not everybody's going to fall into this, but for a lot of us, uh, boys can handle sometimes, sometimes, not all the time, but boys can often handle more directive um, like, I don't even want to call it like aggressive because that's not the word, but like more assertive styles. That's why a lot of times in business, you'll find that men can be not as touchy feely soft as women. It's like the way Sean texts me versus the way that my friends text me. Theirs is filled with like heart emojis and, and kissy faces and smiles and like XOXO. And Sean's is like, I'm on my way home, period. Right? Nothing. And that's just part of how people are. And when I, when I message things, he's always like, wow, you use so many emojis and stuff. Like that's crazy. Or if you looked at his most used emojis and my most used emojis, they'd be very different. Anyway, I'm getting off topic, but I just want you to know that everybody experiences things differently. And just because your, your brothers thought that she was great, doesn't mean that you don't have the right to think she was not great at all. And so the work for you is actually, I would encourage you to get into therapy because having an emotionally unintelligent parent means that we are emotionally unintelligent by proxy. And I know that sounds horrible because you're like, well, fuck, well, if our parents aren't good at this, I mean, we're not going to be good at it. No, we can be. It just means we don't have that leg up like everybody else where our parents expressed emotions healthfully, uh, talked about them and demonstrated how someone works through them and processes them. Your mom didn't do that shit. She was too busy gossiping and uh, being pushy and, you know, getting mad all the time. And that can make us feel, especially as a highly sensitive person, as I uh, also feel that I am, like we're walking on eggshells and we can worry that we're upsetting people all the time, which can lead us to being super people pleasers, highly anxious. There's a lot that can come along with that. And I really feel that talking about this in therapy and processing it through can help you just at the very least get a new perspective on your situation. Have someone validate how you feel. Get someone who can meet you where you're at and have empathy for what you've gone through because you went through a lot and your mom kind of sounds like a jerk and sure she's maybe trying her best, but to get mad easily and like she sounds a little narcissistic. I'm not going to lie. Um, you said you don't think she's a narcissist, but I think she has some of the symptoms of it because that sounds kind of like that, like getting, you know, being oblivious to how her actions can be seen by others, but she could just also be a very, very selfish person. But again, 
how you experienced it is valid. And I want you to hear that from someone and I want you to talk it through. Um, and I would potentially consider talking to your brothers. I, I'm sure you already have, but talking to them about how your mother's parenting style affected you and the things that you found upsetting. And we cannot control other people. And I, by no, I don't want you to tell them, like, I think you're making a mistake and you're parenting your kids wrong or whatever. But I do think it's worth having the conversation with them and their wives or whatever about the fact that that was hurtful for you. And you just wanted them to be aware so that if they have a child that tends to be more sensitive, that hopefully they'd consider that, you know, you can be like, it's your child and you do what you want. I just wanted you to know I had a different perspective. And so I would want, you know, I want to prevent this from happening to someone else because I'm still dealing with it. And I know you thought it was great, but it was hard for me. And we're different people. But let's say you have a child that is a me. I would like to, you know, at least speak up for that. If you feel comfortable, I think that could be helpful because as a therapist, I'm like, let's not have this happen to anybody else. It sounds pretty terrible. And your mom sounds like kind of like a jerk. So we want to make sure that we maybe nip that in the bud if we can. I hope that that's helpful. You have every right to feel the way you feel. And I really think talking about it in therapy, especially as a new parent too, being a mom yourself, I, it could be, it could only benefit you and your child for you to talk about this and, and figure out where this is coming from and, and resolve it to the best of your ability. Okay. Question number nine says, hi, Katie, I'm a sexual abuse survivor who is currently in therapy and I've addressed the trauma, confronted my abuser and gotten rid of the triggers that used to occur during sex itself. But I still have one nagging issue that I can't seem to get rid of. The abuse happened when I was 14, just when I should have been developing a healthy view of sex and starting to explore my feelings around that. The abuse stopped that progress in its tracks. I ended up having, or <clears throat> excuse me, I ended up avoiding sex altogether until I was in my late 20s. Because of that, I feel like I'm mentally stuck at 14 when it comes to the lead up to sex. So I never, I never feel sexy or like sex is normal. Sorry, I lost my place there for a second. And it feels like something I should be nervous about every single time. Like I said, I'm completely fine during the sex itself, but I get really anxious beforehand. Even in my most recent relationship that lasted a few years, a few years now, he's extremely understanding. So no amount of practice makes it easier. There aren't a lot of resources out there for those of us who've avoided sex when they should have been exploring it and sort of missed out on normalizing it. Everything seems to be um, for those who had the opposite reaction and use sex as a tool to deal with the trauma. I got the Courage to Heal workbook, but it seems more focused on stuff I've already dealt with. I'm hoping you can point me towards some resources that might help me to relax and allow myself to feel sexy for once. Thank you. I thought this was a great question because I recently reviewed part of the Courage to Heal workbook for my trauma book that I'm writing because I wanted to add in there's a component of it where it's like breaking down sexual acts as things that are like uh, safe, possibly safe and unsafe so that you kind of have things that you can do and don't do with your partner. And it's something you can work through. And for this question, I really think that the, the work is going to be obviously, well, not obviously, but it's going to be more on with you and not just with a partner, because it sounds like it's, it's the in the feeling sexy and the looking forward to sex itself. I could be wrong, but that sounds like what that's what you're saying to me. Cause you said you, you never feel sexy or like sex is normal. It feels like something that you should be nervous about. And so we have that automatic response, right? 
we think about sex or sex is something that we know is going to happen, right? Maybe we've, uh, we're going out with our boyfriend and we know, you know, he's kissing on us and we're like, okay, we're going to have sex later and trying to prepare ourselves. And instead of enjoying it and getting excited about it, we get nervous. Totally understandable. But something that, and this is going to sound, you're like, geez, Katie, just jump into it. But I, I would like you to learn to uh, masturbate. I'd like you to do that for yourself. I'd like you to put on sexy underwear or try out different things to see what makes you feel sexy because everybody's different. Everyone is going to have different things that turn them on, different things that make them feel sexy. Like one of my patients years and years ago wanted to be like freshly showered and the fresh sheets, she was very into cleanliness anyways. And that was something we worked on separately. But there are certain things that can make you feel good. And I want you as much as possible to explore this and figure out what it is about certain scenarios that make you feel sexy, certain things in your environment that you can control to easily make you feel sexy. Um, And I want you to explore uh, initiating sex with yourself. Like masturbation is a healthy way for us to try out, um, not even try out, it's more just like explore our sex life and explore our sexuality. Um, I think that that would be a place for you to kind of start. And when it comes to resources, I I looked and I I don't I haven't had any personally that have helped with my patients. However, I know in the back of the Courage Tale workbook, if you didn't see this already, the author um, she offers a ton of resources. Whether it's more male focused, more adult abuse focused, she offers a ton of books that she finds to be super helpful because she understands and recognizes that her book is definitely for people who've. Uh, experienced child sexual abuse, and it's mainly women focused. So check out that list and see if there's any on there that really spark something for you. You could even, I would even encourage you to explore reading, you know, like a, what was the book? The 50 Shades of Grey. Not that you have to read that book, but something like that to get us excited to uh, explore it a little bit more. And then you could even journal about what you think the lead up to sex, like what do we think is causing us to feel nervous? Do we have any facts to support that? We have to challenge those thoughts because it's almost like a knee jerk reaction. And so I would encourage you to kind of push back against that and consider that maybe it's just a trigger for me. And so how do I calm myself down and how do I reground myself so that I know that this is okay? And again, this is kind of why I'm saying you can practice it on your own. This is something you can kind of do as a buildup um, so that you can figure out how you feel sexy, what around you, what about your situation and you can make you feel sexy. Are you? Do you feel more sexy if you're in control? Do you want to initiate the sex? Maybe that's something that we say to the, our next sexual partner because um, it sounds like, oh yeah, it sounds like you are still in a relationship because you said your most recent relationships last a few years now. Yeah, I'd even talk to him about it and about what's going on and you know, maybe you want to buy sex toys. There's a lot of things that we can do to expand on our sexuality and try out different things. You could tell him maybe you want to instigate it this time. I don't know if you've already done this, but that could be another way. You could tell him that that you want him to instigate it in this particular way. He could do that, but we have to explore it first. And maybe that's just part of what it is. And I'm glad that you're currently in therapy. I would talk a little bit about this more in therapy to 
ex- like explore and journaling and explore and talking about what you consider sexy. What is it that makes you excited about engaging in a sexual act with your partner? What are things about your own self that can make you feel more empowered and more sexual? And so often we we turn away from this and people are embarrassed to talk about it, embarrassed to to address these situations. And it's really for the health of all of us and all of our sex lives to be able to talk about it and to know that we can have a healthy relationship with it. We just have to understand what it's like for us, what feels comfortable and okay for us. And so I know that that's not like a, this is going to fix it, but there's no real quick fix. It's more about that lead up for sex and either you feeling in control you preparing yourself mentally, maybe there's some calming techniques we do so that we don't go into the nervous state, all of that. I want you to, you know, journal about it, think about it, be curious about it. And then I want you to try out some different things and some different techniques so that we can explore and it's okay to be curious. We can go back to that 14 year old you when you felt like you should have been developing a healthy view of sex. We can go, we can still do that. We can still be curious, explore, buy sex toys, buy sexy lingerie, try out different things, uh, get certain things on our bed or shower. We can try different, you know, behaviors and see how that works and if that helps. And if you want to like, do things on your own, you can, you can encourage and incorporate your boyfriend if you want, whatever, it's it's completely up to you. But I think just exploring it more, being more curious, even reading some raunchy sex novels can sometimes help as well. Um, It's kind of up to you and what you're comfortable with and what you want to do first. But that's why I'm just giving you a whole swath of things that you can try out so that you can have that uh, early teen curiosity that most people who didn't have, you know, sexual abuse occurring at that time, we're able to do, we can still take that back, right? Trauma can't keep taking things from us. We're going to take it back and we're going to learn and we're going to be curious and it'll get better. Okay. And I hope that helps. I wish I had more resources like books and everything, but at the back of the, uh, the courage to workbook is a lot of resources. Hopefully that, uh, leads you in the right direction. Okay. Two more questions. Question number 10. What does it mean when my therapist asks me to imagine or think back to something? And I can only think about the fact that I need to imagine or think back to something. I only hear myself repeating, think back to that. Think back to that in my head. I love this question. I love the comments below it. There's so many times you guys in my time online where I've realized, wow, therapists say stupid shit that nobody understands and it makes things hard for you. So I, on behalf of all therapists, I apologize. So we ask that I'm sure people know why it's kind of like, because we're wanting to get more information about that situation or that time in our life or the way that we were wanting to tap into how you're feeling, there can be a lot of different reasons. But the reason that we can, we can't, it's almost like we're not able to think back to that is there's a block there somewhere, meaning it could be too triggering, we could struggle with memory, because it's a trauma memory. We could be so disconnected from our feelings that to try to tap into that is like, tap into what? I don't even know what you're talking about, right? There are so many reasons that we won't, wouldn't be able to do it. And the important thing is in therapy to say, I'm trying and I can't. That's okay. As a therapist, we are well equipped to handle that. Usually, because this happens all the time. Usually I just try to find another way in. I've talked about this, how it's like your house, the front door. I tried the front door. I tried to say, think back and imagine that. I tried the front door. It's locked. We can't get in that way. Hmm. Okay. Let's try this window. Oh, that window's locked. Shit. So I'm going to try all these different questions to try to break into that house. 
because the house is like the real goal of therapy. It's like getting you to open up, feel your feelings, be able to recall memories easily, all that stuff. So I'm going to try to find a way to get in. And it's up to me to try to ask you the right questions in a certain way to kind of weasel my way in or like pick that lock, right? So just let your therapist know, I can't, I, I can't imagine. I can't think back to it. I don't know why. I, whenever you ask me that, I can't. You can also journal about that and, and be curious about why that is. What do you think is getting in the way? Are you triggered? Is this a defense mechanism? Are you worried about what you're going to think or feel? Are you worried that your feelings are going to be like this huge tsunami that washes you over and drowns you? Consider it. Be okay. Be curious. It's okay to be curious and non-judgmental, right? That's actually the goal of therapy is curiosity without judgment. So let's try to learn why this is happening. And a lot of that learning can happen while our therapist asks us other questions. So just let your therapist know. I know that sounds really simple, but that's really the truth. It's up to us to try to work with you with information we have to kind of get in there. So they'll hopefully ask you some different types of questions until we figure out how to pick that lock or how to find that one window that's open in the back, right? We'll get there. So just be patient and be honest and open with your therapist about it. It happens all the time. Trust me. Okay. Final question. Question number 11 says, Hey Katie, how do therapists feel when a client tells you that they are having suicidal thoughts? Hmm. Other than asking the questions that you need to ask, what is the way you approach the situation and how do you feel? Thanks so much. To be honest, I feel, uh, I feel bad for my patients who are suicidal and I worry. That's the honest to God truth. That's those like knee jerk reactions, because I know that suicide comes out of like a hopeless, helpless feeling and no one wants to feel that way. And we felt shitty for so long, we don't really see another way out. And so my goal is really just to have them be able to see that things can get better and that there is hope to be had. And it's my job really to like light that match and show them like, you know, they're in a dark place. It's like lighting that match, that little spark. I try to be that spark to ignite that again in them. And so, okay, other than asking the questions you need to ask, because I was about to get into that. It's like, you know me, hey, hey, what's the way you approach a situation? And how do you feel? So the way that I approach it is to ask more questions. It's always questions. I want to make sure that they feel heard and understood. I want to make sure that they know that I'm there with them, and that I'm supporting them. And that I want them to to stay around. I want them to know that they're important. I see them and I don't want them to leave. And I'm going to have to do a lot of the things like, you know, like what questions I'm going to need to ask about, like if you have a plan and the means and all that stuff, that's going to be woven into it. But I'm going to approach it from a place of softness, understanding, trying to let them teach me about their experience. I don't want to come off harsh. I don't want to pretend that I know what they're going through. I want them to tell me. And then I want to, I want them to feel like I can hold, I can bear that burden for them. I can hold it for them. And I, that's kind of like the spark, right? Trying to be that spark any way I can. Depends on the patient, depends on the suicidal thoughts, depends on how they think about things. But that's kind of where I come at it from is like, I want them to know I hear them and see them and they're important. And I want them to feel supported. And I want them to feel like I can hold 
what they're telling me. And I want them to put like, we'll put plans together, right? Because there are legal ramifications when it comes to suicidal thoughts. And so I'm going to go through that with them. So they feel empowered. They don't feel like I'm making all the decisions and they have no power anymore because talk about helpless and hopeless. I mean, Jesus. So I want them to feel like they're part of this process and we're making choices that are helpful and supportive for them. And that's really the overall goal is just to make sure they feel that and don't feel more disempowered because that would be the opposite of what I would hope to get across. And then, then, you know, giving them the time and the space to talk about it and then doing check-ins and stuff, all that stuff too. And then how do I feel just worried? I feel worried usually. And I sometimes sad. And, and then there is this little part of me sometimes that will feel like I haven't done my job you know, like I'm not effective. And as a therapist, if anybody out there is a therapist too, we go through periods of that. I want you all to know that there are days just like any other job where I'm like, man, I fucking suck at my job. Because, you know, it can be for a lot of reasons. Like I had a patient that's suicidal means I'm not supporting them or something like, fuck, man, not doing that. Or like, all I've been trying to get this patient to like, real have a realization for months and then they like take it somewhere else and I'm like no 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 we were so close and then I'm like fuck I suck and so we do have that as therapists we just have these days where like I just don't feel effective and I don't know why and I'm still trying my best but it's still you know it's not magic and I don't some days are better than others also patients show up with other shit going on than maybe I know of because they haven't told me or maybe I didn't hear that one thing and I or I move past something too quickly for them. You know, it's always this push and pull with patients. And so when someone's really struggling, I can't help but feel partially responsible. And like, I should have saw the symptom or like noticed some of the symptoms earlier. I should have noticed they were shutting down about this, or I should have recognized that their, that their mom coming into town was so triggering. I don't know. There could be all sorts of things. Um, but mainly it's just worried and then trying to figure out the best way to support them and the best way to help them feel seen and heard and understood. Because when we feel that way, we can think that no one gets it and no one knows. And I'm not saying like, I know how you feel. I've been there too. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying, I want them to feel like I, I'm letting them teach me their experience and I'm, I'm really listening and I'm paying attention and I care. Um, so yeah, I guess that's really it. Uh, they're very common. And the sooner we start talking about our suicidal thoughts, the sooner someone can offer those resources. Because like I said, sometimes I worry that I'm overlooking things. But as a therapist, you don't want to dive into something too much if you don't know, like you don't want to make a a mountain out of a molehill, right? So there's these, these push and pulls with clients and trying to figure out the best way to get things moving in the right direction. Um, so yeah, make sure you talk about them with your therapist, bring them up it's okay to talk about them and it's okay to ask for more support and all that good stuff. I hope that kind of explains a little bit about how I deal with it. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for sending in your questions. I hope that that was helpful. I hope it was interesting. I hope I didn't get off on too many tangents as you know that I do. But if you are wondering where to ask your questions, you go over to the opinions that don't matter YouTube channel in the community tab on Mondays. I post asking for these And that is where I pull them from. And if there's a question similar to yours, you just go ahead and give it a thumbs up and then I pick them. And that's how we do it. Thanks for listening. I love you all. I love you all. Sorry, stumbled over my words there. I love you all. (laughs) And I'll see you next week. Bye. You can ask her about your self-esteem or why you're feeling. You can ask her.
I pinch your face. I pinch. I squish your head. These faces have already been pinched. Wait a second. Ask Kate.